Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. My name is Paul and today we're going to be talking about conspiracy theory. So I guess instead of dealing with a a single dystopia here, we're dealing with a whole collection of dystopian stories that aim to explain the world that we live in in various ways. Um, I think conspiracy theory is interesting to talk about for a a whole number of reasons. Um, Perhaps most obviously, conspiracy theory has become incredibly prevalent in um, the political discourse and and in terms of its influence on political outcomes. So I'm thinking of things like um, the the significance of QAnon in Donald Trump's base. I'm thinking of the anti-vax conspiracies that are obviously more prevalent at the moment because of the ongoing corona, coronavirus pandemic. Um, but, but conspiracy theory... Uh, dystopia, sorry, I meant to say, dystopias are often a way of attempting to critique the contemporary society that we live in. I think conspiracy theory, as we'll get to talking about uh, with my my guest later, um, I think conspiracy theory can also, it's also kind of a a way of of offering a critical perspective, but, but comes out in a difficult and or complicated and often very problematic way. Um, the people that are espousing conspiracy theory obviously don't tend to think of them as, as fictions. They tend to, to think of them as facts. And this is this is um, quite a different thing. Though uh, conspiracy theory can sometimes have relationships to to uh, to facts in terms of things that are actually going on. If that sounds like I'm going to claim that the Earth is flat in a minute that's that's not the case and uh, you'll hear what I mean when, when we get into the, the interview but all, all this is, is to say is that conspiracy theory is not only um, very prevalent at the moment but it, it uh, is a lens through which we can think about the way that our world is conceptualized like where it emerges from what it's responding to and also on the show, I'm obviously also interested in in thinking about like the political potential of the, the things we look at so conspiracy theory is is often placed in kind of opposition to authority uh even though that may not always be the case when you look at its content and who supports it what it what it seems to do but at least positions itself as being kind of anti-authoritarian so there's a question there of whether the popularity of conspiracy theory the extent to which that shows um the extent to which is a sign of people being discontent with the, the current system, whether that might present us some kind of opportunity or not. Um, so these are all things that I'm going to be talking about with my guest today, which is Cory Doctorow. Uh, if you happen to not know who, who Cory Doctorow is, uh, he is a, a science fiction writer and a journalist, um, very much known, I suppose, in, in terms of his journalism, in terms of advocacy for... Uh, freedom of the internet, of of um, being critical of uh, copyright law, uh, being a big proponent of open source, file sharing, things like that. But yeah, also known for, for his science fiction where he, he deals with a lot of these kind of subjects, very interested in um, 
you type in ideas of kind of post-scarcity and things like that. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there in his fiction to look at. So some of his novels, which you may have heard of, um, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, uh, Homeland, Walk Away, uh, Attack Surface most recently. So he's, he's written a whole bunch of stuff. And actually, at some point this year, I plan to be doing an episode on Walk Away. So that'll be fun to look at. So uh, you've got that to look forward to. And there's, there, there's um, we've talked a load of times on the show about how prevalent dystopian fiction is in comparison to explicitly utopian fiction. And and Corey's one of those rare authors who, who does try uh, in some of his, his work to depict uh, utopias or utopian forms. So... I think that's very worthwhile and that'd be an interesting thing to look at but anyway that's that's not the subject of, of what we're talking about today very quickly before we get on to the interview with Corey there's actually already a Utopian Horizons episode on conspiracy theory uh from a, a different perspective which you, which is one of many of the of the Patreon bonus episodes I've produced I've also looked at video games and anime and there's run-throughs of capitalist realism and i'm currently focusing on um running through a book called economic science fictions as well as the tv series uh snowpiercer so if you if you like this uh show if you uh, enjoyed this episode if you've been if you've been enjoying previous episodes and you'd like to hear more from me then consider going to patreon.com slash utopian horizons where you can support me to help me keep on doing this and get access to loads of extra bonus stuff um and as i always say ratings reviews on uh apple podcasts or whatever would be very helpful as well if you've been enjoying the show um that would be cool and um just quickly to say after you listen to this episode if you have any thoughts on it if you have any um any questions or any comments you'd like to make on this or, or anything else i'll leave all the I'll, I'll put in all the contact details at the end of the interview so you, you can find a way to to get in touch with me there so that's enough of that let's get on to our interview now with Corey. <laughs> joining me now is Corey doctorow and thank you very much for joining me Corey. my pleasure thanks for having me on i'm sorry that i was a little chaotic about this today i'm looking for <laughs> no, that's 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 no problem don't worry about it so um You've come on to me to uh, talk about um, conspiracy theory. Uh, now, I heard you on um, Podside Picnic talking about conspiracy theory. I think I've heard you um, one or two other places talking about it. Um, and you mentioned, I think, that you were g- going to be working on a book about conspiracy theory. Is that right, first of all? Well, I- I've published a book. It's called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism. It came out in the summer 2020. Uh, online with one uh, zero, which is Medium, and they've just done a paperback release as well. Oh, okay, I missed that. <laughs> I, I would have read it ahead of time if I'd known. Oh, that's all right. Um, okay, so yeah, first first thing I wanted to know is obviously it's something you're uh, interested in if you've written a book about it and you've talked about it before. So, um, what is it that's kind of interests you about conspiracy theory? What's uh, drawn you to that subject? Well, uh, you know, I um uh, started on this path when I read Shoshana Zuboff's book, um, In the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And she hypothesizes that uh, big tech is doing some kind of rogue capitalism. That's the phrase she uses. She says that um, that by doing data collection and analysis, that they can bypass our critical faculties and perform kind of behavior modification on us. And that this explains their success 
and and also that it explains the rise and rise of conspiracy theories. You know, my, my shorthand for this argument is uh, Facebook designed a mind control ray to sell your nephew a fidget spinner, and Robert Mercer sold it and made your uncle a racist. Uh, or rather, Mar Robert Mercer stole it and made your uncle a racist with it. Yeah. And and I think that there are some severe problems with this. So the, the first one, of course, is that everyone who's ever claimed to have a mind control ray was lying either to themselves or to everyone else or both, whether that's Rasputin or MK Ultra or, you know, NLP cranks or pickup yeah. artist misogynists. They're all they're all just full of it. Right. And and sometimes they sometimes they're smoking their own product, but they're all full of it. And so I think that we should be skeptical of it and that we should take any claims about the ability to reliably modify people's behavior in large scale ways by bypassing their critical faculties. We should require extraordinary proof for those extraordinary claims. And the proof is very thin. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mostly you get the marketing boasts that the firms make to their customers, to advertisers, you know, um, give us your money and we'll sell your fidget spinner or, you know, your Brexit and get people to vote for it. And also that, uh, the, the other, the other element of these claims is things like, um, the, uh, patent filings that they make, which again are very thin gruel for, as far as, uh, proof goes, patents, uh, don't need to demonstrate a working machine. You can find patents for perpetual motion machines and zero point energy and time machines in the USPTO database. The patent office will take your money, right? If you want to describe a machine, whether or not it works, they'll take your money and grant you the patent on it. And so again, these, these tend to be a, a form of marketing puffery more than a description of a working invention. And so this, this raises some important questions, um, some of which, well, all of which relate to conspiracy. The first is, to what extent do these firms modify our behavior and what is the mechanism of it? And the second is, um, how are we to account for the rise and rise of objectively outlandish things that people believe, like, you know, the earth being flat? or lizard people secretly running the world, you know, the, these ones. You can pick ones that have less obvious political valences to, to make the argument without having to get people to, you know, agree that the stolen election was a conspiracy theory. People who, people who, who think the stolen election really happened still, by and large, don't think lizard people run the earth or that the earth is flat. And so we can just, we can just use those examples. And I, I think that it's absolutely the case that large tech firms uh, modify our behaviors in extremely large and reliable ways, but not by doing things like the Facebook voter experiment, where they tried um, uh, making an intervention to see if they could change how many people went out to the polls. And they subjected 60 million people to this intervention, and they saw 0.4% effect size, uh, which they believe to be statistically significant. But I think most of us would say 0.4 is not a big number. We also don't know, like, what would happen the next time they did it. You know, clearly, people can be swayed by stimulus at, at the beginning that doesn't, that doesn't continue to sway them over longer timescales. You know, I, I um, am recording this from my office, which is also my garage, which is also my laundry room. And, and I have a little note on my mic that says, check the washing machine. Because although it's very loud and it's really disturbing when I turn it on, five minutes later I stop hearing it because we become inured to stimulus really quickly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there's at least a colorable reason to believe that if they saw a 0.4 effect, uh, percent effect size on that first intervention, that that'll be the best result they ever have. You know, the first banner ad generated like a 45% click-through rate. 
Uh, and currently, you know, banner ads generate like 0.00001% click-through rates, you know, because people, the first time it was a curiosity, the, the millionth time it's an annoyance, and then the yeah. 10 millionth time it's invisible. And so we don't know if it would work, but we do know that our behavior is really grossly influenced, and it's grossly influenced by things like monopoly. So Facebook has a walled garden. All of your friends are locked inside of it. They won't allow interoperability with a rival service. So if you want to talk to your friends, you have to use Facebook. That really grossly influences your conduct, right? You go to Facebook every day because your friends are there. They go to Facebook every day because you are there. And Facebook won't let you or them leave and still stay in touch with your old friends, right? That is... um. That is a, an effect that keeps people in, not by bypassing their critical faculties, but by locking them in and imposing high switching costs on them. You know, the Berlin Wall did this for the people of the DDR, right? It, it, and it wasn't because people in the DDR didn't want to traverse the wall. It was because yeah. they knew that traversing the wall was on the one hand hard and on the other hand would permanently cut them off from their loved ones. You know, my, my grandmother was a Soviet refugee who lost touch with her family for 15 years after after leaving the Soviet Union and coming to Canada. So, you know, it's a big deal, right? It, it's, it comes at a very high cost. So that's one mm. way in which our, our, our outcomes are grossly affected. Another one is in um, what we buy, how much we pay for it, and what we use. Apple maintains an absolute monopoly over what apps can run on its mobile devices. Um, they reject devices that don't meet, or they reject apps that don't meet their um, uh, editorial standards. Included in apps that have been rejected in the past for failing to meet their editorial standards are books that mention Amazon, because you might go and buy the book from Amazon instead of from their own bookstore. Dictionaries that have swear words in them. Apps that um, criticize the Chinese manufacturing plants in which Apple's phones are made, and apps that tell you when drones kill U.S. drones kill civilians overseas, and so that grossly influences your behavior. Right? You might want to run an, a dictionary with dirty words in it, and Apple won't let you. Right? That that doesn't involve bypassing your critical faculties. That involves having the monopoly over which apps you can use. And then there's other ways where, like, where if you want to know the answer to a factual question, you almost will always go to Google. Google has a search monopoly. If they tell you the wrong answer and it fills a data void, right? How long is the uh, Tower Bridge in London, right? Uh, I, I mean, if you told me it was 100 miles long, I'd know you were lying. But if you if you fudge by three meters, I would never know. How would I know? Right. I, I, it's a, it's an absolute, um, data vacuum for me. And so they can fill it with whatever they want. So Google has the answers to all of our questions. This also grossly influences our beliefs, but not because it bypasses our critical faculties, but because it fills information voids. And so th these monopolies are engaged in gross manipulation of our behavior without us having to reach to these exotic explanations where maybe they finally figured out the secret that neither Rasputin nor MK Ultra could ever find, which is how to make us believe that up is down and black is white. But then this still leaves us without an answer to the question, why do people think the earth is flat? Why do more people think the earth is flat today than at any time when more people today have seen the curvature of the earth with their own eyes from an airplane because they're a kid who built a, a, a high floating balloon with a GoPro that got up in the troposphere and captured the earth's curvature because they got to a top of a mountain. You know, how is it that in this moment in which you can directly disconfirm the flat earth, that more people believe in the flat earth at any time than at any time? And I think the answer there is intimately related to monopolies. Because when you have a monopoly or an oligopoly, when you concentrate an industry down to a few actors, 
it, on the one hand, is very profitable. That's why firms form monopolies. They extract what economists call the monopoly rents, lots of money, super normal profits. And on the other hand, it's extraordinarily effective at mobilizing those those profits because when there's only five companies in a in an industry or three or two or one, it's really easy to decide how to spend the money to get parochial gains from regulators that serve your interests. And what this does is it discredits the idea that we can know the truth through official processes because the truth-seeking exercises that we use to navigate a very complex and potentially fatal landscape, right? The, the, should you get on a 737 max now that Boeing is flying them again? Should you get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine or wait for the Moderna vaccine or not get any vaccine at all? Should you wear a mask? Are, are your kids being adequately educated? Is the reinforced steel joist in your sitting room adequate to hold the ceiling up? Or are you going to die when it falls on you? Uh, two weeks ago, my Kia automobile was taken hostage by a ransomware attack that locked out the app. Kia says that they've fixed it and that I don't have to worry, for example, that my brakes will no longer work. I have to <laughs> trust the outcome of that technical assertion. And I can't understand uh, the evidentiary basis for these technical assertions. Right? Like I am an expert in some things. I know a lot about computer science. I, I uh, have an honorary doctorate in computer science from the Open University. I'm a visiting professor there. I've worked in tech policy for 20 years. I feel like I could probably understand the brakes question about my Kia. I don't know anything about structural engineering or metallurgy. I have no idea if the RSJ over my head is going to kill me when my roof caves in on me. And even if I went back to school and got an engineering degree, I'd be no better off when it came to understanding whether or not I should trust a vaccine. And so the only way that we can navigate these questions is not by doing research or being critical thinkers. People who claim conspiracism is a lack of critical thinking have never talked to a conspiratorialist because their alpha and omega is critical thinking thinking. Consider the source. Why should I believe that vaccines are safe when giant pharma companies conspired to kickstart the opioid epidemic, kill more Americans than the Vietnam War, and then got away with it with more cash in hand than the Rockefellers because their regulators colluded with them and then failed to adequately punish them after they got away with it? Why on earth would I ever trust the uh, vaccines that come from the same companies run by the same executives and overseen by the same regulators who are supposed to be running these uh, neutral truth-seeking exercises to determine whether the things they claim are safe are really safe and fit for human consumption. They're not wrong, right? Like that is an absolutely yeah. correct place to start with. The problem is that it leaves you in an epistemological void. Because if you can't answer these questions by looking at official truth-seeking, nor can you answer these questions by, quote, doing the research, then you are left in cults of personality, where you find someone who sounds like they know what they're talking about, you put your trust in them, and you hope they're right about other stuff. And that, I think, is how we get to conspiratorialism. The internet makes it really easy to find people who have certain hard-to-find traits. That's why it's an advertising medium. Most people will buy one or fewer refrigerators in their life. So, you know, if you want to find a refrigerator shopper, you need the internet. The alternative is you whack up a couple of giant billboards outside of Heathrow on the on the theory that, like, people who fly have money and refrigerators cost money, so maybe some of those people will spend money on refrigerators. And instead, you can use surveillance capitalism and advertise to people who've, like, looked up kitchen remodeling. And you'll still get, like, 0.00001 one percent uh, uh, return on those ads, but it's going to be a billion times better than the ads that you stuck up on, you know, the M4. So, so you know, all of that um, 
is great for advertisers and it's great for people who think Black Lives Matter and want to find other people who think that. And it's great for people who think that um, uh, gender is a, not a binary and is instead a spectrum and you can find other people. You can make common cause and create social movements. And it's great for people who think that the medical establishment can't be trusted and you type into your search box, uh, should I get vaccinated? And you find a community of people who have constructed an airtight bubble of rationalizations grounded in truth about the uh, unreliability of our truth-seeking exercises, who will tell you why you can't trust the vaccine. And that, finally, is why I think we have conspiratorialism. It's the same thing that lets tech manipulate our behavior. It's the monopoly. It's not the rogue capitalism. It's capitalism working as intended, that markets without regulation tend towards monopoly over time. Every one of our markets has become monopolized from aerospace to glass bottles to professional wrestling to spirits to tobacco to accountancy to energy. They've all been monopolized because of a 40-year experiment in allowing companies to violate antitrust law with impunity. We stopped enforcing antitrust law in the era of Reagan and Thatcher. And here we are. We can't trust our regulators. We don't know what's true. We face life or death decisions every day, and we are in the reeling terror of the epistemological void, and we grasp at any straw we can find. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, as you've said, like we're, we're at this stage where conspiracy theory seems to be on the rise for, for some of the, the reasons you've outlined. Do you think that as it's, as it's begun to rise and have more of a uh, obvious impact on um, political outcomes. Um, obviously, we have uh, all the time people talking about like QAnon and the relationship of that to uh, Trump's base. Anti-vax is like a big thing. So it's, it's, it's becoming a more, it seems to become more prevalent. As it's become more prevalent, do you think that conspiracy theory has, has changed in any way in terms of um, its political leanings or or the extent to which it's interested in politics. I was thinking, I've actually, when I was making notes on this, I've actually changed my mind since I, I, I made notes on it, because initially I was thinking of like uh, conspiracy theory as being something which in the past kind of presented itself as being apolitical. Um, then I remembered stuff like McCarthyism and things like that and realised that was wrong. But at least there was, I think, at least in the 90s, when I think of conspiracy theory, I tend to think of more stuff like people talking about aliens and like the men in black, like hiding it and think these, these kind of things, which are, are kind of... Um, yeah, at least at surface, kind of apolitical, and and that, and there was a, I would think of a lot of conspiracy theory as being certainly anti-authoritarian, um, sometimes uh, having a tendency towards libertarianism, but something which, at least in in, in at times, could cross left-right boundaries to some extent. Um, it feels to me now that conspiracy theory is more dominated by the right wing. Um, I don't know if that's uh, I don't know if that's a correct summarization, but I wondered what your thoughts on that were. If you've seen conspiracy theory changed in its nature as it's become more prevalent in any way. Well, I think there it's definitely a, a bipartisan element, but there are different characters uh, depending on which side of the political aisle you're on. So, for example, the the Russia um, the Russia conspiracy theory about election hacking. It's like there's a bunch of objective work now where, you know, independent uh, social scientists have looked at measuring things like 
um, how many people saw Russian disinformation and how many of them were already Trump supporters? Because, of course, mm-hmm. you know, the Russian disinformation campaigns were stuck working within the confines of Facebook. So, like, the things that they were picking to advertise against or the groups that they were entering were spaces where people already supported Trump for the most part. So what you find is that there's very little reach, right? Now, it may it was a very close election. Obviously, like, it was won in a technicality in 2016. It might have inched things towards uh, Trump victory, but anything could have inched things towards a Trump victory. If you're that close to a Trump victory, yeah, you've got a problem with, with, uh, with, with disinformation, but you've got a bigger problem with being that close to a Trump victory, right? With having your, yeah. your yeah. political situation so disordered that you end up there. So it's, it's, and it's worth saying as well, like the, the Russia stuff went beyond the things that actually happened to liberals kind of accusing journalists that were critical yeah, sure. of Clinton or whatever as being Russian assets and all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Calling Snowden a Russian asset because John Kerry took away his passport while he was in transit and stranded him in Russia. That's some plan, right? Like, I'm going to get stuck in Russia by convincing the violently anti-Russian U.S. Secretary of State to take away my passport while I'm in the air so that I can't board my connection and I get stuck in Russia forever. That's like, that is diabolical planning. Tell you what. Um, So, you know, these, these, um, so there's definitely some on both sides. The right has got some major advantages in terms of conspiratorialism. So one is that uh, the core of right-wing ideology and to a lesser extent, liberal ideology, but especially right-wing ideology, is that rich people deserve to be rich, right? The mm. the the um, political scientist Corey Robin wrote a book called The Reactionary Mind, where he tries to define what right-wing thought actually is, where right-wing thought comes from. And uh, he he says, look, you know, you have people who are on the right who don't seem to be on the same side, right? You have uh, uh, isolationist finance ghouls who think that, you know, it's fine to break unions, but that the U.S. shouldn't send soldiers abroad to take oil, for example. And then you have dominionists who uh, are completely opposed to libertarians who want to open up the sex trade, but uh, think that women should be subservient to men and children should be subservient to parents. And you have monarchists and you have, like, you have all of these different groups of people And the one characteristic that they share, although they have these contradictory beliefs, the one thing that is common to all of these belief systems is that they all think that someone should be in charge by dint of birth and that the system finds those people who should be in charge and puts them in charge and that the system works best when the people who are born to rule rule so that unworthy people are not given the power over other people's lives, that the ones who order and structure our lives are the ones who were ordained to order and structure our lives. Right. And, Mm. and that I think is the, um, is the common thread that runs through it. And so when you have a right wing conspiracy theory, it, the thing that makes it right wing is always going to be in part that it's about preserving or restoring the dominance of an already powerful group. That already powerful group will support your conspiratorial movement, right? They'll give you money, mm. right? They'll they'll give you resources. They'll give you stages to step on. They'll endow chairs. They'll publish your books. They'll they'll do all kinds of things 
that will benefit your cause. So, you know, being on the side of helping rich people stay rich makes fundraising easier than being on the side of, of, of helping poor people uh, find riches because poor people don't have any money to give you yeah. to help you, right? Uh, and then there's the other problem, which is that, and, you know, this is where my political leanings show through, but they're wrong. They're, they're just wrong. When you let people rule unchecked, even very wise people who are smart and good at what they do, they will eventually come up against their blind spots and they will make mistakes. And the more power we give them, the more that those mistakes will redound to the detriment of very large numbers of people. You know, if we were to replace Mark Zuckerberg with the wisest of wise kings, it would still not be good that one person gets a veto over the contours of the social lives of 2.6 billion people. No one should have that job. No one in the world should have that job. And so when you um, al allow the powerful to rule without check, they make mistakes that make people's lives miserable. And that's the other piece of conspiratorialism, right? The, the thing that makes people conspiratorial is not just a chapter and verse knowledge of corruption, previous conspiracies. You know, every ufologist knows about all kinds of aerospace cover-ups. Um, there are a bunch of uh, black Americans who think that Katrina was uh, a stitch-up, that they uh, deliberately dynamited the levees to drown the black neighborhoods in New Orleans and spare the white neighborhoods, the affluent neighborhoods. It, I don't think that happened. It seems pretty clear that that didn't happen, but it actually did happen in the 20s in Tupelo, Mississippi. They did drown a black city not far from New Orleans. And the people who believe this grew up hearing the stories of that. It's what, and, and not just hearing the stories, but living the lives of people whose parents and grandparents had all of their intergenerational wealth wiped out by the callous decision to flood and murder and destroy the fortunes of black people to spare white people. And so that trauma plus the knowledge of other conspiracies combined to, to give you this. And so the, the right-wing conspiracies tend to uh, um, revolve around hand-waving away or resolving the dissonance of real-world real traumas, right, of, of people who are crushed by student debt or whose houses were stolen through foreclosure mills or who are misclassified as workers, uh, misclassified as contractors by gig economy companies and deprived of health benefits and basic workplace protections or who are maimed by automated uh, warehouse machines at an Amazon warehouse. You somehow have to resolve the, the dissonance of the bad outcomes of your belief with not wanting to let go of that belief itself. And so you end up writing a conspiracy. You know, the, the most obvious example right now is the belief that Antifa super, super soldiers pretended to be MAGA trolls and stormed the Capitol, right? Like, you know, <laughs> if you are on the side of law and order and Blue Lives Matter, and then the movement you support goes and kills a bunch of cops and 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 breaks a bunch of federal laws, one of the ways that you can resolve the dissonance is to just say that those weren't, you know, it's like no true Scotsman on steroids. Those people weren't actually MAGA true believers. They were Antifa who put on red hats to discredit us. It was all a false flag, right? You know, the same is true of the crisis actor belief, right? If you believe in guns because you want to protect people, and then your belief in guns causes a school full of 
tiny children to be murdered in their classrooms, then what you have to do is actually say the guns would have protected them. The thing that killed them were anti-gun activists pretending to be uh, mass shooters, and the kids didn't even exist in the first place. They were all actors. Right. So, so, yeah. you know, that that's a long winded way of saying reality has a left wing bias. And so, you know, you, if you're going to believe something unreal, chances are it's going to be right wing. Not always. Right. There's tons of tankies who think that Uyghurs are being uh, given, you know, massages and, and free kombucha at those uh, employment training camps in Xinjiang province. Right. But like, you know, mostly. I think the the conspiracy theory the the need to deny reality to keep your belief system intact is it falls primarily on the right. Yeah. So what do you think an effective response to conspiracy theory would look like because because clearly like as you've already said like you can't just kind of like if you get if you give a conspiracy theorist the like the facts the, if they say that yeah if you gave them the facts like as you say they find a way to reinterpret those to make it fit the fit the story that they have so you you can't just do that um as you've as you've said as well like there's the problem of the fact that conspiracy theory uh even when it's wrong often touches on like an actually existing problem so big so is the example you gave anti-vaxxers don't trust the pharmaceutical industry as you said there are good reasons for them not to do that the example you you gave uh also things like um, you know, pharm- pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies buying patents of drugs and uh, hiking up the price, and um, you know they're, they're no longer investing in research and development and stuff because they just want to get this quick rich get rich quick scheme. So, you, if people think pharmaceutical companies are trying to screw us, um, we can't trust them. Like there are good reasons to think that so this creates a a big problem for us in terms of trying to trying to counter conspiracy theories so what would be what do you think would be an effective way to deal with that what would it look like if we were going to have a spot response to conspiracy theory that could counter the the growth of it and the the prevalence of it and how how much it's it's uh, affecting politics in a negative way at the moment well you know it's a bit like if you have someone you love who um, became uh, uh, addicted to a substance and became abusive and stole from you and cheated you, um, subjected you to physical violence, uh, and then they get reformed, right? They get clean, they go through treatment. How do you trust them again? You know, it's a long and complicated process and it never fully recovers. You talk to people whose parents were addicts of one kind or another, and they may love them, there may be circumstances in which they'll trust them, but the, the trust that they had before the trust was violated never fully returns. And I think we have to contemplate that possibility that we are going to have to live out the next century or two in an environment in which um, there is an extraordinary duty on regulators to show they're working to... Uh, avoid even the hint of a shadow of an appearance of impropriety or conflicts, um, and to also root out the cause of what's happened before, to undergo the hard truth and reconciliation work of figuring out not just whether the Sackler family deserved to you know, have every penny stripped from them, which they do, or go to prison, which they, I'm not prison abolitionist, so I'm not going to say they do, but they definitely deserve to be punished. <laughs> But also, what role regulators played in it? 
right? How how we got there, and it, and it's going to have to be an an open, searing, soul searching process to get people to ever trust those regulators again. We're going to have to see those people publicly discredited, the people who did it, for having for having done it, and they're going to have to be struck off and 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 shut out. Um, we need to attend to the material circumstances of of conspiratorialists. The to locate conspiracism in ideology, right? As though the arguments for the flat earth are what is winning the day, as opposed to material circumstances, right? The arguments are the same, the people are more vulnerable, is is to miss the point, right? Like the the you know, yeah, it's we have to clear the brush that's in the path of the of the wildfire to keep it from spreading, but what we really need to do is the forest management to stop the wildfires, right? We like we really need to 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 actually undertake deep structural shifts that mean that companies like Boeing, which you know engineered the deaths of hundreds of people to chase a dollar, just cease to trade. Maybe they become a workers' co-op, right? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they become a state-owned mm-hmm. enterprise, but they should not trade. Right. If you deliberately sabotage your own, like if you first of all militate and and lobby hard for the right to regulate your own aviation safety, and then you cut corners and murder people by the hundreds, you shouldn't get an eighteen billion dollar bailout in the first CARES Act, right? You should be nationalized so that those yeah. jobs remain intact, and the managers should be rooted out. The managers responsible should be rooted out. Um, and there should be a, an aggressive whistleblower protection program and every and, you know, a, a top to bottom reinvestigation by by a public entity, not by Boeing's own internal investigators to find out what's going on. You just have to like if you want to convince your kid there's no monsters under the bed, you have to pick the bed up, shine a torch under it, show them, you know, like you have to do the work of, of proving there's no monsters <laughs> under the bed, um, you know, and and. If you happen to find some, uh, like, big old hairy spiders under there, you probably need to get an exterminator in before your kid's going to believe you, right? And, you know, yeah. there is a good reason not to trust our institutions. And fixing uh, people's trust without fixing the institutions is a uh, – it's like, it's like the stages of, of grief here, right? It's the bargaining stage. Can I just still have corrupt institutions and just have people less upset about it? You know, it's the it's the thing every abuser says. I'm sorry you're angry at me. Have you tried being less angry? Right? Like not yeah. not have I tried being less abusive, but have you tried being less traumatized yeah. by it? Yeah. Yeah, that, as you said, I think it is it, a has to be um both a kind of ideological and uh, material rehabilitation going on at the at the same time because yeah, even if we're thinking about like distrust of of public institutions and like public bodies public figures authority obviously we've been told for decades ideologically by neoliberalism that public bodies are bad and they don't work and all this stuff and they've been deliberately underfunded so that our material experience of them is is more and more often that they don't work and they're broken so yeah, as as you said, I think it's 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 both this ideological thing and like the experience of of the people have in their lives. Um, this is this is why people are wrong to say 
Uh, it doesn't matter if rich people cheat and get in ahead on the vaccine lines. Uh, because if the system is perceived as unjust and rigged, it, it, it will lack credibility in all ways. And so if, for example, we later on discover that there's a variant that requires a booster, people will be less mm -hmm. likely to, to go and get the booster until the, the, the variant has become so widespread that it's harder to contain because they won't trust the people telling them that because they've seen that it's a chumocracy where where they arrange things to suit the benefit of their of their you know old Etonian mates and not to to serve the public that they were that they are paid to serve and elected to serve and so it really does matter it really does matter that the system must be seen to be just in the same way that it really mm. did matter that we told people not to wear masks even when we thought they needed masks because we didn't want them to hoard masks because we thought that that you know they would take them away from from medical care workers once we lied to people, they stopped trusting us. And so then when we said, oh, it's aerosol, it's not aerosol, it's this, it's that, it's fomites. It, there's a difference between not knowing the science and saying our best understanding right now is you should, you know, wipe down your groceries and just flat out lying and saying, we actually do understand right now that you should not uh, go out without a mask, but we are also going to ask you to forbear on going out rather than buying all the masks because the doctors and nurses and EMTs and so on, they need them. They need them more than you. That might get worse compliance in the short run, but it produces a, a, a higher degree of trust in mm. official information in the long run. Yeah. Makes sense. Just changing gears a bit. I, I, uh, I was interested in the, in the people that engage with conspiracy theory. Um, I think it, I find it quite difficult often to, tell how seriously the people that take part in it take it like if they're i mean clearly some people do but if it's not clear to what extent they're using it cynically or what they're getting out of it quite a lot of time it feels like um like they're playing a game like a like a arg yeah. um yeah i just wondered if you have any had any thoughts on on like yeah what people are getting out of this to what degree they're engaging with this earnestly or cynically or whatever well, I think, as you say, it's a mix. There's definitely an ARG-like element to it. You know, there's a, there's a lovely podcast called uh, Ono, oh Ross, and Carrie, which is uh, hosted by these two skeptics who were once um, uh, Orthodox, uh, not Orthodox, they were Evangelical Christians, uh, and right. who have since left the faith. And they were both, you know, to a first approximation, members of a conspiratorial cult, and they participate in these fringe science and religion uh, efforts with a very open heart, right? To try and like identify the parts of it that are uh, beneficial and soothing and that give the, the adherents something that they need. Uh, but they're also skeptical and they debunk them. And so they've become Mormons and they've become um, Raelians and they've drunk their own urine and they've had sound baths and they've learned Reiki and they just finished a long series where they became certified exorcists. And they spent a long time talking to a bunch of flat earthers and they talked to this, uh, you know, flat earther grifter thinkfluencer who's got a, you know, big YouTube channel. Uh, and he said, this is the best conspiracy I've ever found. And what he meant <laughs> was like, it's the most fun and the most lucrative <laughs> and the one that, um, you know, the one that makes my, uh, that feels most satisfying and so, yeah, it's mm. definitely, there's an element of like collaborative narrative making, right? Um, mm. 
you know, like it's 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 like playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons where the dungeon master says, you know, you're you you see the dragon in front of you, and you know, you know that there's a bunch of like things that you're allowed to to do here, but you improvise something. You say, you know, I I check to see if the rafters have a uh, a loose beam that I could use to uh, to chuck my grappling hook on, so I can swing around the back of the dragon and see if the um, and and see if that if there's a, a you know a chink in the dragon's armor behind it, and the dungeon master and your fellow players are like, that's a super cool idea and would make our game more fun. So we're gonna let you do that, mm. right? We've just like you've invented a new move that isn't in the rules, and we're gonna let you do it because it makes the experience for all of us better. And I think when you read like QAnon drop interpretation, there's definitely an element of it. But I also think that's true if you go to a yeshiva and watch people debate debate the Talmud, right? Like I don't think it's it's that far off from faith practices, and you know the the gap between faith uh, and cult is is pretty narrow. And uh, it's hard to distinguish, right, when people are making it up because it's fun and when people are making it up because they think they've got a line on on revealed truth. You know, the, the mm. there's a writer who's not related to me named E.L. Doctorow, is a wonderful writer, uh, multiple Pulitzer winner, who uh, wrote an essay called The Creationists about the history of people's view of creativity. And he talks about the um, Genesis story. So the, the, you know, there's two Genesis stories in the Bible. There's uh, Adam and Eve, and then there's like the creation of everything in six days, right? And uh, the creation of everything in six days was actually plagiarized from Babylonian text. And the Babylonian texts like have a kind of rubric for them, like why why you should believe this otherwise outrageous thing. Um, and that rubric is that this idea is so cool that there's no way I thought of it, right? It's so cool that it must have been divinely inspired because no human imagination could have come up with this unaided, right? And this is the problem with faith generally as an epistemological scheme is that there's, it's not falsifiable. There's like no way to distinguish feelings you have about the truth of a proposition, that is true from feelings you have about the truth of a proposition that is false. You know, I have many times thought that a hundred percent that I knew where I left my glasses and couldn't find them and thought, you know, that one of the people I live with had moved them and then I find them somewhere else. And despite my deeply held unshakable faith that I remember where I put them when I find them somewhere else, I'm like, no, I was just totally wrong. I put them down here instead. There's no way a priori. If, if you think one thing and I think another thing and the basis for the, our beliefs is faith, there's no way to to uh, resolve the the contention. Whereas if I say, you know, matter and uh, Earth gravity well falls at nine meters per second squared, and you say it's eight point seven, we can actually resolve that dispute, right? Like we can just sit down and do it together. And so I think that there are a lot of people who are trapped in the kind of the faith mind palace where they can't tell if the ideas come to them because it's true or uh, because it's so cool that it must be true, or because it's so cool because it seems like it's true. And the mechanism by which these faith disputes get resolved in the 21st century is not through, like, soaring rhetoric, it's through upvotes, you know, and mm -hmm. and and likes. And so this sets up a very ARG-like environment where, you know, the thing that delights your, your fellow religionists slash you know, members of your party in the dungeon is the thing that becomes true. 
And, you know, you talk to ARG runners from the old days, you know, from the I Love Bees days, and they'll say, like, we did this all the time. We would, you know, I Love Bees dropped, like, code fragments that were just pseudocode that they made up in into uh, clues in the game. And game players who have computer science backgrounds formulated entire programming languages from the fragments, right? Like, uh, extrapolated mm -hmm. what programming language must have produced these fragments. And then the game runners took the programming language and structured future clues in it. And the people who had backformed this programming language congratulated themselves, not for having made a really cool idea that the game masters nicked off of them, but for having successfully intuited what the game masters meant all along. Right. <laughs> and, and that I think, particularly when you talk about Q, because there is a game master or game masters, right. That, that I think is definitely happening. Yeah. Um, very quickly, because I know you're, you're short on time now. Um, do you think there's any positive political potential in the popularity of conspiracy theory? Because like the, some of these ways we've talked about conspiracy theory, like holding institutions to account and things like that, that's hard to do when you don't have the power to do it, which the left doesn't really have at the moment. So we, we're in a position of needing to build power. We've talked about conspiracy theory sometimes having a kind of intuition of like real injustice so is is there a do you think there is a like a, a potential there to kind of in this in, in injustice that which is one of the effects of it is to kind of generate conspiracy theories can we is there a potential there to kind of bring those people uh to our side in some way well i you know there's that old irish joke if you wanted to get there i wouldn't start from here Right. Like there are other things that I could imagine as more powerful um, organizing facts on the ground for creating uh, leftist pushback than, um, you know, widespread right wing beliefs and lizard people. Uh, but <laughs> but, you know, you when life gives you SARS, you make sarsaparilla. Right. You just got to use what you got. And what we got is this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've just sketched out the organizational basis for trying to capitalize on this, which is to say your mistrust of power and your belief in corruption is entirely true. You've just got the wrong prescription. Uh, and, you know, we can't like science can work. It's just not working. Uh, and the reason it's not working is this thing that you hold dear, which is this this mystical belief in uh, markets clearing and selfishness being Pareto optic optimal and so on. Um, if you can kind of, if I can lead you gently out of the mind palace into this contrafactual where you say, well, what if the actual problem isn't that we didn't let Martin Shkreli raise prices on drugs. The problem is that Martin Shkreli was the one who said the quiet part out loud. And if we'd only been regulating all of his colleagues that, a you know, sociopathic twerp like him would have never had the chance to raise prices mm -hmm. on drugs, you know, and if you can get people to kind of see that, I think you get somewhere, you know, I think that this is the Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump crossover, you know, the, yeah, those, sure. those, yeah, yeah. those voters, they're, they're voters who believe the system is rigged. I also think that, you know, there is room on the left and, and, and just more generally in progressive circles to talk about the system being rigged. You know, the fact that the, the right, that the Tories and, and, and the Republicans have now owned the idea that the system is rigged when they're the ones who bloody rigged it. Like that is a yeah. remarkable achievement, right? That is like Goebbels level final boss stuff. Um, and, and, you know, I think that we do need to, to win back the, the truth 
that we are the movement of telling you the system is rigged because by god it is rigged you know yeah yeah 100 percent. okay well um thank you very much for your time Corey. really appreciate it um was there anything you'd uh, like to to point listeners to in terms of uh, any um, books you've had come out recently or have oh, got sure. coming out? Yeah, I publish a lot. I had four books out in 2020. So there was How to Destroy oh, wow. Surveillance Capitalism. There was Attack Surface, which is the standalone third little brother book. Uh, it's about um, tech workers who find themselves working for giant surveillance contractors for oppressive governments who have to confront their own complicity and have like a moral reckoning with it. And it's full of all kinds of like pretty technically rigorous skullduggery about, you know, machine learning and facial recognition and car autopilots and, uh, you know, um, uh, attacks on uh, digital movement building and so on and what the countermeasures look like. Uh, there's also the first two Little Brother books that were just reissued uh, as part of that with a new introduction by Edward Snowden. And then there's a, a picture book for like four to six year olds called Posey the Monster Slayer. That's about a little girl who um, tears apart her toys and repurposes them as monster hunting weapons and who can't who won't let her parents get back to sleep. And they keep coming into her room and telling her to go back to sleep. And, and, and then another monster comes to her room. So she has to do battle with it. And very gradually, she turns her parents into zombies, which turn out to be the only monsters that she can't fight. But all they want to do when they win the monster battle is tuck her into bed. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a fun little picture book and I write heaps of stuff. I've got a couple of books on the go now, uh, uh, a book with Rebecca Giblin, the Australian copyright scholar about, um, uh, rigged labor markets for creative labor and how copyright can't solve those rigged labor markets where you have concentrated power. Um, I, I've got a, a novel called The Lost Cause about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias after the uh, Green New Deal transition. And I'm working on a super noir cyberpunk detective thriller at the moment, as well as a bunch of short stories. So lots of stuff in the pipeline. I do a daily blog and newsletter at pluralistic.net. Uh, you can read it as a Twitter feed or as a Tumblr feed or as a Mastodon feed or as a newsletter or on a blog. There's no cost. There's no begging. There's no Patreon. There's no surveillance. There's no trackers and there's no ads. It's just me talking about the stuff that matters every day. Uh, and you can get all of my books wherever you buy books. But uh, if you want to buy the ebooks rather than buying them on Amazon, my publishers all let me sell them from my own website. So if you go to craphound.com slash shop, you can buy them all there. And I get the 30% that would otherwise go to Amazon. I send the 70% back to my publisher and then they send me my royalty out of that. So I about double my earnings from those. Cool. Uh, lots of interesting stuff there. I'm going to look at that picture book for my daughter's birthday. Um, oh, excellent. How old is she? <laughs> She's going to be five. Uh, oh, like perfect! End of the month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. So, Matt Rockefeller yes. did the art. Is drew really good monsters, really fun monsters. Cool. I'll check that out for sure. Uh, well, thanks again, Corey. Oh, cheers! It's my pleasure. That is the end of the conversation with Corey. I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned, we'll be returning to look at uh, one of Corey's novels later this year, um, Walk Away. So, if that interests you, then. Um, subscribe to the show make sure you don't miss that uh or you can follow me on twitter at utopian horizons um and yeah i'll be tweeting about it whenever that whenever that comes around um that's also a good place if you want to get in contact with me with any questions or comments or suggestions or anything alternatively you can use utopian horizons pod at gmail.com as well as i mentioned at the top of the show if you, if you like this then then if you could please uh, consider taking a quick moment to give me a review, 
uh, help make the show a bit more visible, get more people listen to it. That would help me out a lot. And the other way you can help me is to support me directly on patreon.com slash utopian horizons where uh, you get access to bonus episodes for doing so. Um, that is the end of this one. I can already tell you what's coming up next because I've already recorded the episode. Um, so I have spoken to Cameron Kunzelman, who you may remember if you've been listening to the show for a while. Uh, he appeared on the show previously to talk about Battle Royale games um, and the kinds of visions of dystopia presented in those. But he, he's coming on to talk to me about Disco Elysium, which is a very cool game uh, from 2019. Uh, a detective game about solving a murder, but set in a very vividly drawn world with some very interesting systems. Um which effectively include like parts of your character or personality or intellect having their own personality and interjecting to talk to you and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, I don't need to talk about that now. You're here in the episode. So that'll be coming soon, uh, as well as lots more stuff that I've got planned. I uh, hope you enjoyed this and I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Bye bye. <laughs>